Hello and welcome to episode number 306 of the Armin Show podcast, where every time there are changes and improvements and we learn more about life and what's out there. We are going to be talking with an author of a book that is right up my alley, which I don't say that often because I have very specific interests, but one of them definitely is information and entropy, and I'll get to more about how that relates to me. But the book is called The Ascent of Information. The author, Caleb Scharf. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Really nice to be here. Glad to have you on here. Sometimes I forget, so I don't want to forget. A British-born astronomer and director of the multidisciplinary Columbia Astrobiology Center at Columbia University, where past guest Dr. Azra Raza is from, but she's an oncologist. She's like a cancer doctor. Uh, also went to Durham and University of Cambridge. You have gone a lot in the United Kingdom has happened over there. This is wonderful. Now, astronomy is your category. Before we get into the book, how did you get into this field, this category, and where you are today? So I have a slightly unusual career trajectory. I, I studied uh, physics and astronomy. I did my PhD in astronomy at Cambridge. And at that stage, I was working in cosmology. So thinking about the universe on the very largest scales, where does everything come from? Where is it all going? The Big Bang and so on. And then I shifted, eventually shifted my research interests over to what's now called astrobiology. And so that's the study of exoplanets, planets around other stars, but also this, the quest to find life in the universe. So I come at things from a very unusual um, platform in as much as I've dabbled in a number of very traditional fields, but then also been involved in really the emergence of this comparatively new field astrobiology. I mean, it's a new field looking at very old questions about, you know, is there life elsewhere in the universe and where do we all come from? So yeah, so that's my, my sort of entry point. And along the way, I've, I've written a lot for a more general audience. I've written a few other books. And then The Ascent of Information is actually also all about, you know, the questions of life. You know, what is life? What is this strange phenomenon? And how does that play out here on Earth and potentially elsewhere in the universe? Mm -hmm. It's a different way into the information path. Astronomy would not be the direct path to that. <laughs> That's right. Although astronomy, in some ways, it's interesting. In the 1980s and 1990s, we didn't call it big data then. But astronomers were already beginning to grapple with some of the, the key elements of big data and thinking about how to deal with that, because we realized at that point that our technology would enable us to catalog and map out the cosmos on ever greater scales with ever greater complexity and data quantity. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting to me to, to watch big data now play out in a very different, uh, different arena. That's true. I was going to include this later, but actually you mentioned big data. I once had a rap song I made and I mentioned this one quote I said, this was 10 years ago. It was about the internet. And I said, data is the new oil. Rockefeller would get jealous. If he had some zeal, then Google's overzealous. So it was a great lyric. And I wanted to bring it back here. Is data, how valuable is data in 2021? Is it like a resource that is untouchably valuable? Or is it going to be irrelevant in about five years? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I look at in the book, and obviously we'll talk more about that, is 
you know, the, the value of data or rather the information within data. I mean, I guess strictly speaking, you know, data is this catch-all term and data can contain information. Um, and you know, the value of information is something really fascinating because we as a species generate an awful lot of information that on the face of it may not have very much intrinsic value or meaning. But what do we mean by meaning? And um, from, a, from a scientific standpoint, from a sort of big picture science standpoint, meaning in information, information embedded in data, is ultimately to do with you know, creating action in the world, with mitigating risk, with you know, survival in a pure Darwinian sense. And so, yeah, so the, the rise of, of big data and our efforts to extract meaning from big data is really, really interesting in this in this broader context. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is called The Ascent of Information, Books, Bits, Genes, Machines, and Life's Unending Algorithm. I like a lot of sections in the book where you take us through how we started to communicate and the value of, let's say, Shakespeare's work and how that information is passed on over time. It is kind of funny when we look at everything in terms of information, which people don't tend to do, but I think it's more relevant because that's the things we defend so much and like these films and musical works and texts. Why is it called the ascent of information? Did it, was it not relevant before? <laughs> well, actually I, my claim is that information is the most relevant thing in the universe perhaps. Uh, yeah, so you know the reason for the title and and this this focus on you know you mentioned things like Shakespeare and so on. You know, part of the idea in the book is begins with an observation, and the observation is that as a species, we're kind of interesting and somewhat unique among other species on Earth, in that we generate, utilize, and propagate all of this information that is not encoded in our DNA. And we carry it through time with us. And, you know, and we found ever more elaborate and efficient ways of doing that. You know, Shakespeare is interesting because he worked in an era 400 years ago where it was you know, written material or, or spoken material. Yet all of that information has completely outlived him. And in fact, it's not just outlived him, it's grown over time. The estimates are that there are roughly 4 billion hard copies of Shakespeare's works in existence or over time. And that um, obviously we, we use his turns of phrase. We still put on Shakespearean plays. We make movies based around his story structures and so on. So that one person is a good example of how information, once it's sort of set loose in the world, can keep on propagating. Now, you know, we're an integral part of that propagation. But if we look at our own biological form, and this is a topic of evolutionary biology that many people like Richard Dawkins and others have talked about over the years, you can see all of that too as having a almost a purely informational basis. I mean, our genes are encoding information. It's information that is really is sort of encoding its own propagation in the world. But then it's not just us, humans, it's life on Earth. And so some people have referred to life on Earth as the outcome of an information bomb. 
that happened three and a half, four billion years ago on Earth when somehow matter was restructured in a way that it could carry uh, information, information that encoded its own future, encoded its own way of expanding and growing into, into the future. So yeah, so in all of this, the ascent of information, it's not just our informational world today in the 21st century, right? Our smartphones and our data centers and so on. The idea is that is part of a continuum. And that continuum began, maybe it even started earlier, but it began here on Earth, you know, something like three and a half, four billion years ago with the first biomolecules, the first self-propagating, self-catalyzing system. And so part of the ascent of information is just, yeah, it's a big picture, right? It's, it's not just what we've done in the 20th and 21st century. It, it's all the way back to the start of life on Earth. It goes way back. I, back in 2008, 9, 10, 11, I had a website called Timeless Information. That was the name of my blog that I wrote, like many articles. And the concept of that was connected to how valuable information is and putting out information. I was very information oriented at the time. But the concept of Timeless, and it'll be lasting and it'll build on itself. A lot of things we have now, they're building on past things. And as you mentioned in the book, the computational effort or energy expended by humanity to maintain and build this energy is growing very quickly how does that impact us in the next decade yeah so this is a really interesting um, sort of observation and thing to to study which is there's a burden to all of this information and i would say the burden has always been there you know when shakespeare was writing his plays and those books were getting printed um, there's an energetic burden you have to make the paper you have to make the ink you have to generate the the, the printed pages now of course we have so much information and data being generated all the time. And we build our electronic repositories, we have our data centers and so on. And although we are getting more efficient in terms of you know, the amount of energy and resources required to contain and distribute and disperse a certain amount of data or information, we're also, our sort of appetite for information seems to be growing exponentially. So some predictions have said that right now, if we extrapolate into the future, you're allowing for some improvement in the efficiency of data curation, but all of our data storage, our data curation, our computational energy requirements in about you know, maybe 10 years to 20 years will be such that they demand more energy than is currently produced by our species on the planet today. So right now, all of our computational uh, energy requirements, all of our, our data centers, our data storage and so on, you know, maybe amounts to a few percent of our total energy generation capacity on the planet. So that's the generation of electricity, the generation of power for, for other processes as well. But if you have exponential growth, it doesn't take that many years <laughs> to get to that level. And so some predictions, not all, but some predictions suggest that in 10 to, to 20 years, some people have said you know, 14 years, which seems far too precise a number. Um, Super specific. Yeah. That you know, if you extrapolate where we're going, just our informational world will demand as much power as we generate in total today. So then what do we do? 
uh, you know, do we just have to keep generating more power? Are we going to find ways to become uh, even more efficient in our energy use for, for curating data and so on? Now, so that's an interesting observation, right? And it's sort of observation people put out there. We panic a bit. We're interested in planetary sustainability. So how are we going to deal with this and so on? Part of what I try to, uh, the line I try to take in the book actually steps outside of that and says, well, you know, maybe there's something even more extraordinary going on here. Because this kind of feels, it does feel kind of out of control. And you have to ask, well, why are we doing this? You know, why are we generating so much data and putting so many resources into its um, support? We could look at that in mundane ways and say, well, it's because some people are making money <laughs> by doing this, right? The Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters and so on, they're all, they're all generating income from this, all generating money, Our industry relies on it. Um, you know, we're interested in big data as ways to optimize our businesses, the way we live, medicine, everything, right? There, there's lots of good stuff there. But what if there's a greater force at play? Uh, is one of the questions I ask in the book. What if what we're seeing is a consequence of this thing, information, being very successful on the planet? It's found this way to expand itself exponentially. And just like everything else in, in evolution, there is no end point. It's not got a goal. Its goal is that it can continue to exist. And so one of the things I look at is whether we're actually caught up in this and that a higher level explanation for this extraordinary growth and burden on our planet is that actually um, it's the information that's making us do this. Because in the Darwinian sense, it's that's what it needs to do. It needs to propagate. It is like a selfish gene, but turned into the selfish bit. Exactly. Yeah, managing yeah. us. It's kind of funny. <laughs> now, you, we mentioned the energy expenditure. And I often think about this with information put out there that if something takes a lot more thought, it takes more, let's say, glucose and prefrontal cortex processing. The average person is not interested. Most like internet stuff that's very popular is really uh, not thought provoking. And that's why it's easy to work with. And then the expenditure for a hefty critical thought is a lot. So there's a select few that actually do that. Um, I wanted to connect this to also beauty, which you brought up in the book, or lowering uh, entropy. I like this part. You said this quote that it was great in the book about entropy reduction. Humans add entropy to the planet as they try to reduce the entropy of their lives and their low entropy technology. It's like making a little gated community of my low entropy and then out there is, is high entropy, but not here. Uh, can you speak on the concept of entropy and making things, let's say, beautiful? Yeah, so um, you know, entropy is a really important concept and it turns out to be a really important concept when we're thinking about information. So entropy is a little hard to get your head around if you're not a physicist or a thermodynamicist, uh, but really the way we look at entropy as a as a quality of the world in physics and in science is that it's a description of the number of arrangements that a given chunk of the world can have so it comes out of 
studies back in the sort of 1700s, 1800s of how things like gases behave in terms of their pressure and their density and their temperature, how those quantities vary in relation to each other. But at a microscopic level, what is a gas? Or what is, you know, my hand or, or the air in this room or the, the whiteboard behind me? It's a collection of atoms and molecules. And in principle, those can be in a, a variety of arrangements, so-called microstates. And a, a volume of gas is quite dynamic. Molecules are whizzing around all the time. So you can think about it whizzing around, but in discrete time steps, every instant, it's in some different configuration. And entropy turns out to be a sort of measure, or the thing we call entropy is a measure of that number of configurations. And so more restricted objects, suppose I have my microprocessor, which is this beautiful piece of extraordinary, exquisite microscopic architecture, where I have rows of silicon etched, and I have little transistors built, I have billions of transistors built, and so on. It's a remarkably ordered structure. Everything is in its place and really doesn't move around very much. So by that standard, you know, its entropy of that silicon chip is comparatively low compared to the entropy of, let's say, a bunch of sand grains on a beach. Right. <laughs> the crystalline structures sort of random and the, the grains are washing around the beach, but I can make my chip out of that kind of matter. I just have to arrange it in a very specific way. And I'm doing so what I end up doing is reducing its entropy. The atoms in that chip only have a number of configurations that they're really allowed to be in. But what we've learned about entropy and why entropy is such an important concept and quality of the universe is that on the grander scale of things, entropy is always increasing. And this is the, the famous second law of thermodynamics, that if you do something in the world, so if I want to make my silicon chip, how do I make it? I don't just snap my fingers and have those atoms arrange themselves into that exquisitely ordered structure. I have to expend energy. I have to move things around. I have to refine raw materials and so on. So when you actually do the full equation, to make that silicon chip, the total entropy of the universe actually goes up a little bit, even though the chip is lower entropy. Everything I do to make it involves injecting more entropy or more disorder, if you will, into the rest of the world to balance it out. And the famous second law of thermodynamics is sort of another way of saying it is that you can only ever break even. You can't win, right? You can't build a perpetual motion machine because there's always going to be this incremental increase in entropy. You're sort of always doing stuff every time you manipulate matter you're creating new potential configurations. So therefore you're increasing entropy. And the extraordinary thing is that we do think that entropy on a universal scale is always growing and has been since the Big Bang. But here we are and living things already do this to some extent. Living things are more ordered matter than the matter around them. But to make that order, you have to create a little more disorder in the environment. To lower the entropy in one place, it seems you have to offset it at least equally by adding entropy to the environment. Um, I, I've used an example in the past of a chicken. <laughs> okay, so 
you may not know chickens, but chickens are, you know, they're, they're pretty organized biological entity, right? They're a functional entity like us, but you put a chicken in a room and it creates havoc. Right? <laughs> it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll, it'll shed feathers, it'll dig things up, it's looking for food, it's, it's making noise, it's running around. It's, mm-hmm. So it's low entropy, but it's, it's definitely generating entropy in the environment around it. And so entropy seems to be both deeply linked to this ordering of matter but then also that actually means that entropy has a connection to what we call information. Because we can think about, well, how do you describe the ordering of matter in a silicon chip versus the chicken or the room that the chicken's in? Well, you imagine writing out a set of instructions. This is where you put all the atoms and molecules. And then in the next instant, this is where you put all the atoms and molecules. Well, what is that set of instructions? It's information. So to cut a very long story short, back in the middle of the 20th century, um, particularly the work of a very famous scientist called Claude Shannon, indicated that information is intimately connected to entropy. Higher entropy tends to mean more information in something, because it takes more to describe something that has higher entropy. I mean, putting it in very crude terms. but it, as people have thought about that, it's become apparent that that is a genuine, deep connection between this fundamental quality of the world that we call entropy that seems to be growing in the universe. People relate it even to the arrow of time in the universe. How do you, how do you tell the direction in which time is going? Well, time is to do with change, and change means a change in entropy as well. So if entropy is always increasing, there is a directionality for time in the universe. But now we're saying entropy and information are intimately connected to each other. And this is one of the things that Claude Shannon demonstrated mathematically, is that we can evaluate the informational content of anything. It could be Shakespeare's play, it could be a note I write, it could be a a TV image or a a movie. we can mathematically describe the informational content in a way that looks almost exactly like the mathematical definition of entropy in physics, which is pretty remarkable. Um, So yeah, so entropy is a super important concept in physics, and it turns out that's a really important concept in our informational world. It is an integral part of information theory. Hmm. To add on to that, this, in fact, this channel, before it was called what it currently is, I used to call it Armentropy, which is my name and mixed with entropy. So award-winning titles, they all kind of connect. So it's kind of like I'm seeing a progression through my content in your book. And also, it's funny because when I switched that to my current name, which doesn't have entropy in it, I also reduced entropy because now it's like a regular program, whereas before it was more chaotic. So there's kind of themes to these. But... Go ahead. Sorry. But, well, no, I said, but but what you may not be aware of is in, in lowering your entropy, you've probably added entropy to the right. world around you. <laughs> Can't believe it. Now, on the counter is you had mentioned information uh, that's uh, corrupted, maybe discarded, or there's information that's propagated, and then there's some information that doesn't make it. Is there anything we can take from that difference? Is there like a... 
top top end of quality information that we are heading towards that other material uh, won't be mixed with yeah so the question of you know when when information gets corrupted or goes away is is a really interesting one um some people have talked about for example in the digital age people have talked about bit rot the idea that not every CD or magnetic tape, if we think about the media of, of a few years ago, um, is going to make it into the future. Um, and even if we, we have, suppose we have a precious file that we maintain, and as technology changes, I have to keep transferring it onto new media. So I'll take my hard drive, I'll put it onto a, a flash drive, and who knows what in the future. You know, there may be corruption at each stage of that. So this is another interesting aspect that while information is incredibly persistent, much like everything else in the world, it's susceptible to damage. Uh, It's susceptible to loss. Uh, The the amazing thing, though, is and something I look at in the book is if you dig around looking at um, really historical information, stuff written in stone tablets, (laughs) stuff written, you know, hundreds of years ago, or left in a library for centuries un- untouched, a lot of it is incredibly persistent. You know, you have to burn the library down <laughs> to eliminate that information. Um, but it does happen. And then this also raises the question of, you know, what's, what's the impact of that loss of information? And then also, what about corrupted information that is still there, but it's not telling you what it originally told you? So obviously humans can corrupt information for their own ends, <laughs> you know, you know, un, you know false, falsehoods and, and um, you know, changing the, the ledger and your accounting program <laughs> to, you know, pocket the money and so on is all a form of informational corruption. And now, of course, we also have uh, machine learning tools that can quite readily generate information that can trick us even you know, into believing that you know, I'm listening to someone say something when it wasn't that person saying that thing. I can even watch a video of someone whose face has been um, manipulated onto someone else's face. You know, the interesting thing about all of that is, you know, it again suggests information is, is much richer. It's a thing. It, it's undergoing change. It's undergoing evolutionary selection over, over time. Um, but it's also it's mirrored in the natural world. It's or mirrored in the biological world. You know, data corruption or information corruption and um, cheating or um, distraction, camouflage, all those things are already part of, of the biological world. So there seems to be a commonality here between the corruption of data as we have it, of corruption of information as we have it, and what's already been going on, again, in the biological world for a very long time. It's, you just reminded me of something that I, uh, I, I spoke with the Nicola Rehani. She's a, she studies uh, fish and uh, cooperation and punishment. And even fish, one fish that goes to another one to clean it, they have like a deal that goes back and forth of like whether they will allow them to clean them or not. And it's like an information transfer but on a lower bandwidth level compared to us, let's say. And all these little organisms we see are doing the same thing we're doing, but at a much uh, simpler scale. 
So it's almost like we're all on the same information patch as some of us are doing way more, let's say. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, that example of, of fish is really interesting because there's another element to this, and this is something also that Claude Shannon came up with in information theory is mathematical framework for the description of information in a sort of austere um, analytic way is the idea of mutual information. So we encode information about the world around us in ourselves all the time. And it's not just us. Everything does that, right? Right down to a bacterium, you know, or even a virus. You know, it has, it has to. It has to have some encoding somehow of information about other things in the world in order to survive. So the fish that you mentioned, yeah, those fish have an encoding in their fishy neurons about the other fish or the other class of things that are fish, as well as other items in the world, maybe foodstuffs or, you know, crabs or octopus or whatever. So there's this interesting additional layer to this, which is information is already being copied in, in nature. Um, and it's being optimized for certain things. I'm sure one fish does not have a complete neurological picture of another fish, but it has the, the qualities of fish that are most important to it. And that also circles back to this idea of, you know, what information means. And so mutual information about the world around us may be one of the most meaningful kinds of information. And, and that's kind of interesting because it, it does away with sort of cultural references to what's meaningful or not meaningful, right? When we talk about meaning in information, it can sound very, very much like I'm giving you a talk on the humanities. Right? <laughs> um, but, but in the end, what matters is the capacity for, for living things to organize information about the external world physically encode it in themselves, which they must do for it to be there. That's the only way. And and to then utilize that. And so there's a whole set of very interesting sort of discussions and arguments there to, to look at in terms of, you know, are there really divisions between things in the world? I mean, you know, where where is our boundary? Um, and some evolutionary biologists who are interested in sort of the mathematical underpinnings of things like evolutionary biology, and even the definition of things like organisms. Some of those scientists propose that rather than just sort of taking a picture and going, well, there's the outside of my fish or my bacteria, but actually looking at it from an informational perspective, you know, where, where does the, the matter stop? Where does the you know the boundary of that organism stop and you can define that by the point at which there is no more sort of encoding of information about the external environment there's you know the processes at that point no longer give predictive power and that may be the actual sort of boundary of an organism in other words our physical boundaries like the boundary of my skin may not actually be the most accurate way to think about my boundaries as an organism, you know, my boundaries as an organism probably extend to, you know, my office, the books <laughs> that are part of my life and, and so on, which is also very, very interesting. It kind of loosens up our conception of living systems. We're not discrete entities so much as the sort of informational 
informational organisms. Hmm. That one right there is interesting. It makes me think of, yeah, like our responsiveness may be the boundary or how much we are able to put out uh, thoughtfully or even like the, the fish. We do, let's say, poker and we do game theory in that the fish or some other organisms are doing a light version of game theory when they meet up and have an interaction. And if they don't follow that guideline or punish behavior or whatever, then one fish loses out and no longer propagates. It's a, it's a funny flow there. They're like and it's informational transfers. I mean, just to, just to add to that. So I think it's a really interesting point and it's a flow that, you know, sometimes very hard to see because it's really, especially for, for living systems engaged in Darwinian evolution and natural selection, you know, the interaction of that one fish with that one fish may seem inconsequential, right? And it may or may not dictate the survival of that particular, you know, member of the fish family. But there could be subtle um, changes, subtle events that occur in that interaction that end up propagating through in a statistical way to the entire population of fish. So, you know, it's kind of like the butterfly effect, right? In a million years time, just because those two fish, you know, failed at cooperation that one time could have ramifications way, way down the timeline. Right. And I, it made me think of bring back the, you mentioned the book DNA encoding that's built over generations and whatnot, where there is redundancy in the DNA to protect information in ways that if we were programming it now, we would make it that way probably so that uh, let's say three amino acids codes for a protein and there's redundancy on some where you switch some and you take one out and it doesn't change anything that comes out as a protein, but the other ones it does. So it's almost like game theory or whatever is in our systems as well. Yeah, the information is encoded safely, which, <laughs> and then we just keep taking stuff from nature and absorbing it like, that's a good idea, good point. <laughs> now one thing that there were some terms that were used there are different from outside terms the only term i would like to look at is data ohm how would you describe the data ohm <laughs> yeah so data ohm is is a word i've invented or <laughs> constructed just as a shorthand so the what i call the data ohm is all of the information that we generate and utilize and propagate through the world that is external to us. So it's ex when I say external to us, I mean external to our genetic code. So the datum might include the electrochemical pulses in our brains, which are relatively temporary, um, but it will also include books. It will include electronic data. It will include the, the picture I scrawled on my bedroom wall when I was three years old. It will include cave paintings. It will include music. And it can even include the, the structures that we make um, ourselves. So for example, this, this pen, I would consider at some level a part of the data ohm because it, it contains information. You know, so this pen it has shape, it has a cap, um, it has a certain amount of engineering, it encodes a certain amount of information about itself and indeed about the nature of the beings using it and about the, you know, the, the processes that manufactured it. So datome is a big catch-all. <laughs> it's for, for all of this other stuff. And, um, you know, in biology, people have talked about the phenotype, 
which is really the, the result of the expression of genes. The genotype expresses itself, builds proteins, builds stuff in the world, and you get a phenotype. And people talked about an extended phenotype, which is, for example, a beaver will build a dam. That's a type of extended phenotype. Or a bird will build a nest. That's a type of extended phenotype. So edging into the inanimate world. And I would say that that's all totally valid. I would add the data ohm to that. I would say the data ohm is perhaps taking it even a bit further and saying that you know, it's a type of extended phenotype, but it's, it's on a grander scale. And it is more to do with, um, less or less to do with the physical instantiation of particular things uh, rather than the information that is contained in those particular things. So yeah, so data ohm, I use that word because it kind of sounds like genome, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, well, okay, it's kind of like genome, but it's an externalized thing that we've generated. And it also kind of sounds like microbiome, which are uh, all the, the microorganisms that, that inhabit our body and every other uh, multicellular organism on the planet. We now understand that we coexist with these microbiomes and they're essential for us and we're essential for them and in that way the data ohm is also similar to the the microbiome i would claim that it's a symbiotic um, system in symbiosis with us we have made a huge extended phenotype out there in terms of yes. data and bits now one thing i like to check is in the category that is being spoken about here as far as data are there any people that you look to for information or who have guided your research or who you find interesting in the field well there are all sorts of interesting people right. in science <laughs> and yeah so um this i wouldn't say that there is a field of the data own yet maybe there will be after this book but there are a lot of people who've thought about closely aligned ideas and aspects of this i mean we can go back in time we can look at people like claude shannon and others um, today there are a variety of people who work on topics like for example artificial life so artificial life is a really interesting field because it's kind of a quirky field. It, it had a, a, a surge of interest back in the 1980s, coincident with a surge of interest in one of the sort of early generation efforts to make artificial intelligence. Artificial life is about asking the question of whether this thing we call life, even though we're not quite sure we understand what that is, is something that could be constructed perhaps in software um, rather than in molecules. Or could it be built in some machine form? So artificial life is about sort of understanding the principles behind living systems. And these days there are a number of people, really interesting people working on that. Um, people who spring to mind, there's um, Professor Sarah, uh, Sarah Inari Walker, who is in Arizona, and she does a lot of work with Professor um, Paul Davies. And they've really made a lot of important statements about the idea of information and life as these closely connected things. Uh, there's a lot of work being done at places like Santa Fe Institute. David Krakauer is um, the president of Santa Fe Institute and also an evolutionary biologist. Of, and he's an extremely skillful 
communicator and, and very, very clever scientist. And he has worked on much to do with um, this idea of information as, as a guiding force, a guiding you know, imperative or, or way of looking at living systems. And then you have your know, other people who are sort of thinking about this even from a more practical point of view. There's uh, a, a chemist, I, um, Lee Cronin in Glasgow, in Scotland. And I, you know, in full disclosure, Lee and I have worked together a little bit. Um, but he's interested in, he's a chemist and he's interested in sort of making chemistry into something it hasn't been before, which is a sort of programmable uh, the field of programming matter. So the idea you can program matter. What is chemistry? It's about programming matter. So why don't we do that and blend our understanding of chemistry with machine learning and robotics in, in an effort ultimately to perhaps construct artificial life. Um, to try to, to, you know, just if we, if we want to understand something, one way to try to understand things is to try to build it yourself. <laughs> So that seems a little bit of a, a reach for life, but then again, we don't fully understand what what life is. So people like these have informed a lot of what um, I write about in the book. They, they're people I talk to and engage with. But it's an interesting field. It's not a mainstream field at the moment, and it perhaps never has been. Uh, but I think maybe it should be, because there are some really important questions that also relate to our burgeoning machine world. Right, so our machine learning systems, we, right, we use, for example, neural net systems. Well, the, the inspiration for that is a highly simplified view of neurons. Right, so we're already making use of our fairly rudimentary understanding of, of living systems to construct algorithmic systems that we think you know, can mimic those living systems and actually do useful things. The remarkable thing is that you know, neural nets and deep learning systems can actually do useful things. <laughs> um, so there may be something there where we can learn more by building more of these tools. Um, more sophisticated versions of machine learning might actually in turn tell us something about not the specifics of the biological construction of thinking organisms, but the underlying principles behind those organisms. You know, what's the rule set? What are the laws of laws of life and laws of intelligence in the universe? You know, maybe we can get at that by um, using our machines and trying to build versions of that. You have to push to the next level of information That's understanding. Right. I always look at information as a connecting tool because if I'm operating on this level of bandwidth or I'm sending out this much information and some other organism is sending this much, we're all, it's like a continuous communication between everybody in some form, not always the highest bandwidth. And sometimes when you see disagreements between people, it's just because they're speaking at two different, uh, I guess, wavelengths and they're not even disagreeing actually. They're just not on the same wavelength. That's so funny transfer i like that you mentioned the santa fe institute uh, i've uh, read a lot of content from there and i brought this because it was the way you mentioned it's jeffrey west scale is from uh, santa fe institute they have a lot of great mixing of different uh disciplines so that's great and then when you mentioned lee cronin at glasgow I, I will be visiting there in the near future so okay. uh i look forward to i feel like the united kingdom 
in general i've said this a few times but it's like it looks like i don't know if i'm just coming up with it but like a hub of philosophy and thinking and science and <clears throat> evolutionary biology um has happened there so i like that concept because that's what i relate with so it would be more likely that i would uh go there and connect with there than maybe um some other patient <laughs> yeah i mean there's a long there's a long history in in the uk and in europe in general of um perhaps a more a more intricate blending of sort of philosophical approaches with scientific approaches um and i think you know that that's you know it's historical it's cultural um but it's it's interesting yeah you know i mean that also relates to you know quite deep questions about you know how do we decode nature and it's interesting to see how different cultures have decoded or tried to decode nature throughout human history um and of course to come back to the data and the remarkable thing is that we can because as a species we do record we do leave behind informational relics we can come back and see what earlier generations were thinking and what very different cultures were thinking and i suspect there's enormous value in that that we have not yet fully tapped mm -hmm. i would like to check this at the end what is one message you would want to let all people know about the ascent of information that might uh, help them along their day or give them insight into the world well it's quite a provocative thing that i'd like people to to get from it and to think we're here to provoke out here yeah yeah which is that you know, we are not what we think we are is really what i'm claiming um, i'm claiming that not only are humans in a deeply symbiotic relationship with their external information their data own we've been that way since homo sapiens kind of diverged from the other hominids um, 200,000 years ago. There was something about us, maybe Neanderthals did this too, to some extent, there's evidence that they did, but it was more limited. You know, the idea of transcendence and singularity, we tend to talk about that, futurists talk about that as, you know, it's coming in the future, we're gonna upload ourselves to machines and so on. Well, I would say, no, it's already happened. It happened 200,000 years ago. Uh, there's something quite unusual and special going on right now. And the, the even more provocative extension to that is, I would argue, and the, really the ascent of information in the book makes the argument that all of our externalized information, the data ohm, is best thought of as another living system on the planet. It's right under our noses. You know, we talk about looking for aliens elsewhere and so on. No, no, it's already happened here. There is an alternate living system it's in a deeply symbiotic relationship with us, which is part of why we haven't been able to see it this way before. But as soon as you start to look at it that way, a lot of things begin to make sense. And it, I believe that it enables us to both individually and as a, maybe as a society to look at the world differently and make better decisions. You know, do we really need those cat videos? <laughs> do, we, do we really have to post on um, Instagram our latest meal and so on? Obviously, we'll probably keep doing that. But to see, you know, to understand that we may be doing it because we're being encouraged by something else to which it's a benefit. Now, often our, our mutual interests, ours and the data own, will align, but not necessarily always, just like with our microbiome. Our mutual interests often align, but not always. A microbiome may 
prefers to be eating certain kinds of food, which our cardiovascular system is not going to do well with. So there's this balance going on. So that is, you know, my provocative statement would be that actually we're living inside another origin event. And it happened about, it started about 200,000 years ago. There's an alternate living system on the planet in the data home, in our externalized information, which is kind of shocking. But the more you think about it, I guarantee the more it will make sense. I like it. It counters the illusion that that thing is over there and this thing is not. I like that. I've, I've talked about this concept. It's not over there. It's not in far in the future. That's funny. Professor Caleb Sharp, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of The Armin Show and giving us a good insight into information and its future ascent. My pleasure. Really enjoyable to talk to you. And to you as well. And we are out.